Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. Today's episode of Writers' Festival Radio features Dr. Keith Seifert and his remarkable book, The Hidden Kingdom of Fungi exploring the microscopic world in our forests, homes, and bodies. Dr. Seifert spent more than 40 years studying fungi on five continents. The book, which he wrote with the support of a grant from the Alfred Sloan Foundation's Public Understanding of Science, Technology, and Economics program, provides a wonderful overview of the ways yeasts and molds in the entire fungal kingdom are a fundamental and underappreciated facet of life on Earth. From the wood wide web to the food on our plate, medical breakthroughs to our gut biomes and the species who share our homes and bodies, there's obviously a lot to explore. Here's our conversation. Now, before we get into fungi and the book, you open, I think, with a beautiful sort of idea of how you came to science about growing up in Sudbury, being out with the dog. And I think one of the things that in our society, we so often try and draw a hard line between the arts and the sciences. And the way you begin this book for me is a really healthy reminder that children, as children, we are scientists and artists in equal measure. And it seems that we just, the world sort of dampens these enthusiasms over time uh, in many of us. But but maybe you can talk a little bit about how growing up in Sudbury, going out with the dog, how that led you to a life of science. And just, I guess the I'm, I'm struck by the kind of organic, just the, the, the beautiful, the play of it, the notion that science, like art, like everything that matters, comes from just really exploring our world and, and, and asking yourself questions and, and watching what your dog is doing. So maybe just, just give people a little idea of, of where you grew up and, and, and uh, how that brought you uh, to the hidden kingdom of uh, fungi. Yeah, I've never really embraced this distinction between art and science as much as seems to be the case in our society and media, they, they create this division between them that I, I'm really not convinced exists. And through my, my, my career, my work was very visual always. And um, so that gave me a kind of a technical connection also with the artistic side. And in my field, there were people who were really artistic, made beautiful drawings, beautiful illustrations, beautiful photographs, and and who could write really well too. My original mentor was a brilliant writer. And um, so to me, I didn't really make the distinction. And when I got older, I I interacted with lots of people, of course, who weren't science scientists and and the uh, working with or interacting with people who were artists, we would discuss this difference. What's the difference between writing a scientific paper and uh, composing a symphony? What's the difference between planning a research project and planning an artistic installation? So that doesn't really uh, tie back to my childhood that much, but Sudbury was uh, an interesting place to grow up because of the, the the mines were the central fact of the 
city, but there was a cultural life that was developing very much at the time I was a child. Um, Laurentian University opened about that time, so the academic kind of sphere came in, and the mining company at the time started to to work with the various departments in the city, um, with various departments in the university, and 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 so they be, the company became a little bit more community oriented in in a sense. My parents came from the prairies, and they were farm children. And uh, so they, and they were both born before the Great Depression. So they were in their teens when, when the Depression happened. And it shaped their life. It shaped their attitude to the world. And um, so they, they really felt, you know, the CCF came out of Saskatoon and Saskatchewan. I don't remember if it was exactly at that time. But, you know, that, that this whole idea that, that the world, that people are, are one unit society community kind of not was naturally transformed onto me and um and i carried that nature with that you know for my parents the, the garden was a, a great pleasure even in sudbury the challenge was what can we grow here <laughs> you know with all of the acid rain and the the metallic um what we now know is metallic uh, pollution that came down into the soil. It was a real challenge to grow anything, but they managed to grow not a bad garden. And, and um, my sisters loved flowers and plants and so on. And I think that's like that introduced me to science, but at the same time, it kept me away from botany, you know, because I didn't want to do what my sisters liked. You know, I wanted to have something <laughs> my own. And, and as I mentioned, the, and you mentioned the dog, you know, digging and and all the joy that she she took in that and and her her feeling of exploration and uh, uh, and being aware that she was perceiving things that i couldn't perceive that she had senses that were more sensitive than my own and uh, that that just kind of led me to the hidden part of science the hidden part of biology when i went to university i guess the question i want to start with is is this is not just about mushrooms. Maybe tell us what what is what is the hidden kingdom. What, what, let's talk about what's the difference between there's animal life, there's plant life, and then there's so there's many other kingdoms. Plants and animals are kingdoms in the the way we classify them. And fungi used to be considered plants for a long time, even when I entered university, they were still considered by some people to be a kind of plant. But now we know from mostly from studies of DNA um, comparisons that, that fungi are their own kingdom and they're more closely related to animals than they are to plants. And then for most people, if they think about fungi at all, it's mushrooms, the larger ones that they see. And then they may have a vague interests like a shadow out, out of the side of your eye you know that, that or maybe there's something growing in the compost or what's that green powder on the bread or that kind of thing and and um so the hidden kingdom is definitely not my phrase that the fungi are referred to as the hidden kingdom by a lot of people mm-hmm. and that that's part of the reason is most 
most of the species are microscopic. You don't see them unless they just kind of poke out a little bit and make themselves known. Otherwise, they're pretty much hidden in what they are growing in, which can be just about anything from soil to rock to our bodies to even, uh, you know, the leaves and trees and um, water. So they're pretty much aware, but we're not aware of them. We may be aware of some of the consequences, but mostly we aren't. So I'm just wondering, like mold, yeast, I feel like people, I certainly didn't get the, the, the ways all of these, these seemingly different things are connected. Like idea that mold in a mushroom is somehow in the same family. Can you just talk about, I mean, the, the breadth of that, can you, what are the things that we interact with daily that are part of this family? Um, well, uh, what you say is true. A lot of people don't recognize that yeast or fungi, they think, if they think about them again, they would think they're bacteria because topic in their life's history is very bacterial. You know, they, they tend to like like growing in liquid and they just bud instead of making a bigger body. But um, th there's a lot of fungi in our food. There's fungi that should be in our food and there's, in other words, fungi that we eat like cheese and mushrooms. And then there, there's fungi that shouldn't be in our food. And most people have some recognition of of moldy food of some kind in the refrigerators or um, in the in the book i make a, a big deal about the number of fungi that are in forests and that really carries on from um some of the books i know that 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 you're aware of in the last couple of years that have really been focusing on the the wood wide web as they call it of fungi that are um connecting plant roots and helping them gather nutrients but the whole tree in, in fact is the body of the tree is also covered by fungi and the leaves have fungi inside them that make these same kind of toxins. But in this case, they're intended to discourage insects from chewing on the leaves. So they're, they're beneficial to the trees for the most part. Um, so now one of the ways that, that it's so confusing, it's difficult to talk about, I think is because we we're used to thinking of things as discrete objects and you know a person has a specific shape a dog has a specific shape um obviously the various um various kinds of colonies take on different shapes and and have have but but this idea of a of a what well, i'm so fascinated by the kind of the the way that a mycelium the the network it it is one and the it is also it is an entity and it is also an ecology, right? It, it kind of blurs this sense of, of self that is so important to the way humans see the world or the way our, certainly our language sees the world as us and them, me and you. Um, what, so I just, you know, you, you go into a forest. So what, what you said that, that most of the tree, that you, the idea that the, the mycelial connection with each tree connects each tree, the tree itself is a, like, tell me what, what's happening there. Like uh, you, you describe it so well in the book, but I'm, I have, I have a real hard time describing to people when we talk about the wood wide web and the ways that the mycelial network and, and, and fungal connections connect the trees and are the trees can you just give me a sense of what's happening when you walk into a forest my, my way of, of trying to get my own head around it has been to to imagine that i was fungus or that you know try try to look from that perspective and what would the world look like to me and you can do the same with your dog you know what what does the world look like to the dog well it doesn't look it smells mm -hmm. 
so for for these all these other organisms that aren't animals they don't have eyes the world doesn't look like anything it smells like something it feels like something uh, in the sense that they're signaling each other and and so we when you go into a forest you're walking on um, a bed of soil particles and fungal hyphae and roots and worms and insects and everything so there's this cushion it's not one thing as anybody who looks at a handful of soil really carefully with a magnifying glass will see it's all kinds of stuff and then the tree itself which does look like a thing like an entity um, it really is a, a community but it's a community that's built around kind of a skeleton so you can imagine it's like your body your skeleton is you and all of the flesh, not all of the flesh, but some of the flesh is actually not you. It's something else. And that's, you can romanticize that. A lot of people do kind of think of this as the joyous unity of nature. And I sometimes feel that way too. But it's more complicated than that because it's, an, it's a negotiation between the partners and the negotiation is perpetual. It never ends. And sometimes parts of the partnership get too aggressive and that's what you would call a disease. And some point, sometimes the host, if you want to call it that, decides, I don't like this partner and they just drop it. So that's one, there's a phenomenon in trees called self-pruning. They, they drop branches and that's one of the reasons why. You know, they want to get rid of, partly because the tissue itself isn't working all that well for them anymore but probably also because there's, there's symbionts in there that are getting too aggressive and, and they feel that, that some, they sense in some way that that's affecting the whole balance of their integrity. And we saw a lot about, about this in Ottawa three weeks ago when all those trees fell down. You, know, why, you can look at those trees and say, why did this tree fall down? And sometimes it's clear. Sometimes you, you would see the, the trunk had cracked open and you would see all this brown rotten wood or white soft spongy wood inside so that's that's a case where the the fungi have gotten in and they've caused serious damage to the trees and and sometimes the whole tree just tipped over and why is that did it just tip over um, because the soil wasn't deep enough to hold it in the force of those winds or did it tip over because there was root decay and the roots themselves were weakening and the tree was in the process of dying anyway it's, with trees, it's very deceptive because they always look really healthy. We like to, at least we think they do. And then, then they start to die. They're, they're not immortal and they have a lifespan. And So, I mean, I guess this leads us to, to the notion of symbiosis. You're saying that we, like the, you know, uh, humans, trees, everything, we're essentially ecologies within ecologies within ecologies, right? Everything is a kind of, we're, we're ecosystems within ecosystems. Um, so maybe let's talk a little just about uh, uh, what is a symbiotic relationship? And, you know, that uh, you, you talk in the book about how, how Darwin is seen, you know, didn't talk that much about about that part of it. Looked at competition, sort of a battle for survival. But what you're saying is, it's a much more complicated relationship. In the same way that you know, our relationship with our family is is complicated. You can have a sibling that is an ally at one minute, and a, and your mortal enemy the next, right? I mean, it it is not one thing 
So maybe talk, let me talk just a little bit about symbiosis and let's, you know, use some examples from, from, from the forest of what, what are the, what is the, what, what, what is the, the fungal kingdom doing within the forest? How is it helping the trees? What is the relationship between it and, and the trees and the foliage and, and the animals and everything? So a symbiosis is a interdependence between different individuals, different organisms, different species. We tend to think of it in terms of different species. Um, that doesn't mean that that interdependence is balanced. In, in some, we, we tend to think of symbiosis as being balanced and then it's called mutualism. That's what's, what's good for you is good for me, so let's do this together. It's the, the kind of classic successful collaboration idea. But there are also dependencies that are totally bad for one of the partners and, and totally to the benefit of the other partner. And that's what we call um, a disease. Mm. But sometimes the, sometimes the organism that's causing the disease of the other one, sometimes it doesn't cause a disease. Sometimes it only causes the disease when the host gets old or if the, something changes um, in, the, in the health of the host and the disease organism just decides, okay, I need to get out of here. And the way to do it is to kill this leaf and, and make some spores and go somewhere else. So in the forest, um, you, you see that the real pure symbioses um, like lichens, for example, which are um, fungal masses with algal cells growing in them and the algae make, uh, undergo photosynthesis, capture uh, um, sunlight and turn it into sugar and then the fungi use that. But the, the fungi provide the infrastructure kind of for, for these algae to live. So that's really pure, clean, mutualistic symbiosis. And the, similarly, the mycorrhizae with the roots are generally that considered that way, that that's, that's a balanced symbiosis. So the, the fungi are, are, have taken over basically the nutrient gathering functions of the roots and the roots are letting them do that. So the fungi make these mantles, these kind of spongy masses around the very root, last tips of the roots. And then they send hyphae out into the soil and they gather in uh, phosphorus and other nutrients and they drag that into the plant. And in return, the plant is doing photosynthesis and sending sugars down into the roots that the fungi then can use. Um, some, some people, if you, if you really dig into the semantics of it, consider the fungi to be something of a parasite on the plants because the plants can grow without the fungi on the roots, but they tend not to be as rigorous. And then in the last decade in particular, there's been a lot of attention to the um, the transfer of nutrients and, and signaling molecules through those fungal cell networks underneath the soil from one tree to another and how trees can uh, withhold nutrients or add, give more nutrients to other trees through that pathway. So that, that's below the ground. And then up in the, the canopy of the trees, it's, it's, it's a different arrangement. The, the, it's much more of a patchwork usually in, in the trees. So it's not, um, they've got, it's a different groups of fungi, they're called endophytes, means in, in the leaves. And these tend to set up smaller colonies within a leaf or they may colonize a whole branch. But so a, a, a tree will, 
have a, a great diversity of endophytes in the leaves. And as I mentioned, I think earlier, those uh, their, their function seems to be to produce toxins that stop insects from eating the leaves. But the line between a parasite and an endophyte tends to slide um, during the growth of a tree. And, and so in a forest, there's there's constant massive amounts of interaction between the the leaf, the the kind of the composting material on the ground between the 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 and, and trees are sharing resources with other trees, with other plants, right? Through the fungal uh um I mean, I will call it a broker in a way, right? I mean, you're sort of trying to anthropomorphize, but think of what is that the, the fungus is basically redistributing the wealth in some ways, right? Or helping the trees to redistribute the wealth. You can you can certainly look at it that way. I think they're helping the whole system, um, so it's not a. You you can look at it as like the if you want you can look at it as the cabling underneath the city. Hmm. So you what you've got an electrical system. Well, is that what's that? You know, is is that a control system? You've got plumbing. You, hmm. You've got the internet cables. Who's so definitely communication? But is is the um, is are, are the electrons that come from the power plant to to my iPad here? Is that communication? Not really. It's it's a it's a nutrient. It's a power source. So it's that kind of thing. And people tend to to focus on that in forest too. And and but there is the whole wood decay thing, which is a significant ecological uh, process that really ties into climate change a lot, because a lot of carbon is bound up in wood mm -hmm. on a planetary scale and so we've got um se several movements going in different countries to plant a lot more trees to sequester the carbon in the wood mass it's a good idea but you have to keep in mind that in order to do that for one thing you need the healthy mycorrhizal system and endophytes to make sure the trees are as healthy as they can be but at the same time you, if you want to keep the carbon sequestered, you have to control the wood decay somehow. Um, and, and so tell me more about that. So to, to control the wood decay somehow, um, obviously, so one of the things that the fungal kingdom is unique in that it can break down very, very, it's, you know, obviously we can't digest tree uh, if we were to eat a, you know, a, a bark or whatever, but, but fungus seems really wonderfully adapted to breaking wood down right to to its constituent parts and turning it back into into something energetic so tell me what what, what is it you're, so we plant a million more trees everyone plants more trees which which pulls carbon um sequesters the carbon right you i think it's important you say in the book that carbon can't be created or destroyed it, it's sort of i mean it's it's everywhere we have a specific amount of carbon the only difference is how much is in the air and how much is safely being um held right sequestered by by us by our books by our trees by uh, the stuff around us am, am i right about that part yeah maybe it's good to have a lot of books published then oh, i think so <laughs> you know i was talking with an environmental writer years ago and i said you know are you, how do you feel about having all these books made you know it, it's environmentally bad he said no a book is wonderful carbon capture as long as you don't burn them which i thought this is a great thing to be uh yeah one more reason not to burn books is uh <laughs> So, so, so you're right. So the, the wood is, there's two main components of wood. One is cellulose, which is what we use to make paper, and that's a fiber. 
And then there's another one called lignin, which fewer people are aware of, which is kind of like a biological plastic. And, it, and it's the binder that holds all of the cellulose fibers together. And you put those together and, and you get wood. And really only fungi can, can break lignin down into its uh, component parts. Other microorganisms can make use of cellulose too. It's not just fungi, but so if we want to use those things. So there's been a lot of research. We know how to get that cellulose. Been a lot of research for decades now about how to manage the lignin part of wood. And it came from the idea of using resource completely, which most people would say is an environmentally sound um, approach. So that there's the whole idea that we need to use lignin. Maybe we can use it to make plastics. Maybe we can use it to make uh, other kinds of products that uh, will ensure that we get the maximum benefit from, from each tree. But at the same time, we, if we're trying to sequester uh, carbon in trees, we want to slow down that process. And it's kind of a stopgap measure, which many people have pointed out. If Yes, we can sequester carbon in trees, but it's going to come back. And what we really need to do is stop um, desequestering um, the carbon that's that's in the fossil fuels. And so it would be a stopgap measure, I think, to to grow all of these trees, so even though most of us would love to see more forests and more trees around. So it would be good that way. And I think we, we have... Um, deforested the planet far more than was sensible in the first place. So if we can restore some of that, I think it would, we would restore the overall ecological balance back to um, something that was, I don't want to say natural because it's its an evolving thing, but um, it, it would be better all around if we had more forests, I think. If we now you think of a contemporary tree farm um, and a lot of the forestation, when we talk about planting trees, we're not really recreating a natural environment, right? We're creating another built environment. It's the same as it's in more similar to a city than a forest, right? A, a, a farmed forest. Is that, is that right? Well, I, I can't remember if I called it fake ecology or, or, uh, or what in the book, artificial ecology. And part of that is because we're, even with the best of intentions, if we try to design an ecosystem, we've been a, unaware of these hidden parts of it, fungi, the bacteria, the, the what they call microinvertebrates, so small insects and, and things like that. Um, and there were, there were these two um, attempts down in the United States, I think it was called the biosphere, where they were trying to build a, a glass, glass house, basically, that would be a system, and they were trying to get, um, you know, people would live in there for three months without any any input from the outside. And the problems they had with them were that they hadn't really considered the microorganisms. They thought about the plants. They had they had some uh, they had a system that should have regenerated as much oxygen as they needed and and you know the water would have been balanced and all of that. But since they hadn't really thought about the microorganisms, it didn't work out very well. So anytime we do that, anytime we plant a forest or, or plant a garden or plant an agricultural field, the more we're aware of the microorganisms, the better it's going to turn out. The good news is that 
we may not need to know what all the parts are. We, most soils in forests are, are self-regenerating for the mycorrhizae. That as long as the forest is not disrupted too much when it's harvested, the mycorrhizae will reform with the, the new trees that are planted. So it, it may not be quite as rich in terms of biodiversity as the original forest was, but it should still function. And so we know that in the forest, the, the fun, fungi is, is essential to anything growing in a forest, any, anything that's growing in the real world, uh, it's, it's fundamental in some ways to life as we know it, much as, as bacterial stuff in our gut is, you know, helps us to digest our food. Um, fungus is doing that in the forest. Is that, is that sort of fair comparison in, in the sense that, that or, or not? It's an, an there's an analogies between all of the systems that that there are there's no such thing as a, a pure <laughs> um, a culture of anything like right so, so there, there's there's going to be essential partners it's kind of a statistical thing if if you know, there there's the real key partners there may be four or five and then there's some that oh it's nice to have and they they help and there, there might be 20 or 30 of those and then there's all these other ones that we don't really know what they do mm. but they in not to harm and it's likely that they're doing something helpful that i mean the, the gut microbiome that you've referred to is that kind of thing there's thousands of species in there and um people try some some um, with probiotics, you know, they try to mimic mm -hmm. what might be in the gut in case somebody might be missing it. But even the, the best probiotics have maybe 10 or 15 different microorganisms in, and often they're not, um, they're the ones that are easy for them to, to grow and formulate into a product like that. And whereas all these other ones, uh, we're not able to grow them. So they grow in us, but we can't grow them in the lab. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. These fungi are, are everywhere. We know, I mean, you got a wonderful stuff in the book about the, again, I never thought about coffee, soy sauce, all of these things as, as being, you know, connected with, with, with um, uh, a fungi. And so that's in our food production, but now a forest, there's lots of things growing, but you come into a home. We like to think of our home as being, you know, uh, uh, we, we were just talking pure, clean, separate from the outside world, but I think this is a part that might shock some people. Maybe talk a little bit about who else is in the building with us. Uh, you, you describe in the book testing your own home to see uh, yeah. what, what's there. Maybe to talk a little bit about right now, if you're sitting in a home uh, or an office, you know, you, you may think you're not really in the natural world, but 
you know, it's not a natural world, but there's a lot of invaders from the natural world in it. At, at about the time I was in grad school, I guess, there, there started to be a lot of concern about molds and buildings. And that came about from as, as the price of energy went up and the heating costs went up. So people thought, oh, we, we should seal up houses so that um, we don't waste heat. And as a consequence, we also conserve moisture and that just made a wonderful place for molds to grow. And, uh, but they've, so, but they've always been there to a certain extent, especially the ones that uh, are involved with food. But our habit of having carpets, for example, is really, was a wonderful decision for fungi. They, that's a really great a place for a fungi to live because it captures dirt and so there's all kinds of nutrients in there um, and then our bedding which disturbs people a, a great amount I mean they're they're quite in some ways very cool uh, ecosystem of, of um, mites well, I'll just might... I'll just interrupt Keith to say that since reading the, the your book um, we've ordered new pillows for the house. <laughs> that is one thing I will warn people is that I think this idea of, I think you recommend changing pillows every couple of years. Um, and uh, as you described sort of the bedroom um, environment, I thought, yeah, I, I need to wash the sheets more often. I need to be a little more aware of this stuff. <laughs> well, I think for people that have got allergies, and this is definitely the time of year when people are thinking about allergies. Mm -hmm. Where I live, I, there's a kind of this layer of pine pollen over everything the whole world looks green right now in a way i wish it didn't but anyhow mm. uh, if you have allergies you need to think about this if you don't really have allergies you can be a little bit more lazy about that kind of housekeeping but if you've got children with asthma for sure i mean this is really one of the leading causes of, of serious asthma symptoms in children and uh, it's not so much the growing fungi as the bits of fungi cell walls. It's a chemical that's in the cell walls. And, and uh, so the fungi don't even really need to be alive. And, and uh, so that, that's a situation where really serious hygiene is important. And Well, so, but wait, what did you, when you tested your home, what did you find? Right. So we found in our home uh, 600 species of fungi so what we what we did was just take we have a canister vacuum cleaner and we just we got rid so of now you said, sorry just i get itchy as soon as you say that i'm all of a sudden i'm, I'm thinking i'm looking around i'm thinking of the chair i'm sitting on and anyway okay so 600 yeah. species and yeah and at the, so at the time we were just we were just testing new methods for detecting dna and um, at that time we thought that the average home had about maybe 20 30 40 fungi in uh, growing in various places in the dust and in the food and in you know carpets and whatnot but our our house turned out to be relatively typical it's this is a healthy house in the sense and uh, so we had uh, most of the studies that have been done in houses in houses find something like you know 200 to 1000 species of fungi but that doesn't mean all those fungi are there it means that their dna is there so any spores that blow in through the window or fall off the food or whatever you know may end up in the vacuum cleaner and be detected in that way um so the trick is with that kind of information is of what actually is growing so some of the fungi do set up house 
as we say, would say, inside our homes. And, uh, and those are the ones that we need to worry about more because the, the total spore mass that, that's floating through the air is what can affect allergies or asthma or just the, that musty kind of uh, feeling that you get when you smell something that's gone moldy. So you don't want that smell in your house. <clears throat> it's not all spores. It's also what are called volatile chemicals or uh, volatile VOCs, volatile organic compounds. And so they can also trigger things like headaches and, and sore throats and so on. But so, so they also come from the mold growth. And it's likely that in a house that with a mold problem, um, the real problem is, is the overall amount of, of fungus, but it's likely to be a, a restricted number of species, five, 10 species that are really going crazy. And, and the trick is to find them. And that can be, sometimes it can be easy. Sometimes you see a patch of uh, moisture on your ceiling and you know there's a leak. And, and when you look up on top of that paneling, you'll see it's moldy. Other times it's more difficult if it's between the wall boards in the joists. And, you know, it's interesting. You make the point in the book, I guess, that, that the home as we know it, our bodies as we know it, the forest as we know it, um, these are kind of liminal states, uh, one way or the other, the, the, we will be consumed at some point, right? We will go back to our, our uh, fungal, <laughs> uh, back into the, you know, it, it's the, everything in our, the, the sheetrock, the, the, everything is eventually going, like all we can do is forestall it a little bit, right? And find a way to live in balance with it. Yeah, sure. And, but, but not all, not to focus entirely on the negative aspects of, Right. of the because they do a lot of good things most people know about penicillin i think whether they realize that that comes from a fungus or not and that like most medicines there's two sides it, it can it has led problems of, of antibiotic resistance and all of that there's another antibiotic called cyclosporin which probably most people have never heard of unless they have somebody in their family that's had an organ transplant and that's what has made organ transplants possible is this fungal metabolite called cyclosporin. Um, I, I, so more than half, half a million people, I think, have had their lives saved by that, that drug through the years. So it's a, it's a lot and, uh, and it really changed the world. I, I take a fungal metabolite daily <laughs> on purpose, which is called a statin. So statins came from fungi as, as well originally. That what are used as drugs are chemically modified statins to make them more soluble in the blood and not um, absorbable in your body. So they're used for controlling cholesterol. Mm-hmm. A lot of enzymes that are used in detergents, uh, used in pulp and paper processing, um, Compounds like citric acid, which is the major acid in soft drinks, and that is all fungal produced by fungi. Here. It's in shampoos. It's in and and you know, there's a chapter in here where I think for me the most exciting, well, there's a few. There's the exciting element of what we can do with medicine that you talk about, and the notion also of rebalancing the biome with probiotics. I, I'm 
I'm taking uh, mushroom supplements every day, you know, uh, um, turkey tail and cordyceps and um, uh, lion's mane and some of these things that, that seem to have in, in early studies anyway, uh, some sense of the benefit. And I certainly feel good consuming them and, and think. Um, so is it, how do you feel about that kind of the, the kind of the, the, where are you most excited right now? Is it the notion of the medical, like the kind of the, the balancing of the body, or is it more in the remediation of the environment? Or do you think it's, it's, it's both? Well, I worked, I spent my career pretty much in agriculture and, and in agriculture, we were mostly fighting against fungi. And there was a small part of the research population that was working on the mycorrhizal fungi involved with agriculture. And given population growth and the need to grow more food, I'm most excited at the possibility of, of being able to address those shortfalls in, in crop yields and so on. And there was a, a colleague of mine who was quite a visionary kind of plant breeder. And he used to say that uh, what we consider 100% yield in agriculture is actually 50%. And that the other 50% is missing because we don't understand the interactions with organisms in the roots and, and the, uh, that are growing inside the plant. And he used to say this, and for years, people would just kind of politely nod, you know, but, but as the years went by, people began to see that more and more, that, that uh, there's a lot to be gained from baby steps in increasing food production. And so that's what excites me, just because of where I, I came from, I think. But I, I'm I'm very intrigued at the uh, many of the ideas that are in that that uh, second lap, last chapter about microtechnology. All of these mm. wonderful things that people are now doing with uh, mushroom mushrooms. So I think you said you you wrote the book um, in large part just to get people excited and aware, and and just have people think a little differently about the hidden world around them, right? So I think maybe one of the that that whole section. I mean, there's. Well, just things about um, so many interesting things in here. Just thinking about dandruff and the notion of of, of that this is that this is tied in uh, that this is a fungus that and and that you need it on some parts of your body. And so the idea that of killing it would be bad for you, but you don't want too much on. Like, well, I find it so fascinating that for you, it's almost it's, it's like a tai chi or something when you start to get into this the level of it's about finding balance. There's no there is no good guy and bad guy. There's nothing what's a pathogen for us is probably necessary somewhere else, right? To help something else. And so the kind of all or nothing you're with us against us thinking doesn't seem that useful in this context. Is that, is that fair to say? Oh yeah. I mean, I, one of the editorial editorial moves I had to do at the end was go through and not overuse the word balance right. because equilibrium is a good, good way to think of it as well. And that, that's really been, that's my approach to life, or never mind just uh, biology or, or mycology. But um, yeah, th there's, um, I, th I think that that kind of thinking that you can just wipe something away and there'll be no consequences, it, it's dangerous thinking. And, and most of the evidence is going to suggest that that's not a good idea. 
and it pervades our society. I mean, I, I don't want to make too much of, of, <laughs> of, of that kind of thing in the context of a book that really is just about fungi. But I, but I do think that they are emblematic or representative of a, the way that our species tends to look at the world and the biological world. The world does not belong to us. We are, we are a part of it. Um, we need to get along with the rest of it and and if we don't we're going to be the ones that lose you know that mm. the rest of the biological world is going to be quite content without us there i think the dogs will miss us <laughs> okay well so let's talk just brief you know to to, to i'm cognizant of, of having taken a lot of your time and i want to i want to share some of that because it's it's such an enthusiastic book. It's such an interesting book. It's a subject matter that is sort of endless and, and it feels like it's only just, we're only just scratching the surface, uh, pardon the terrible pun there, uh, of, of what's under uh, around us and inside us. Um, but what are some of the things that you, 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 you're looking forward to? Like, obviously, you talk a little bit about Chernobyl, the notion that, that mushrooms can mitigate perhaps um, radioactivity. You're talking about plastics. Like maybe just give us a few of the things that, that you see happening and he, like building materials can, you know, chairs, you, you, the notion that, you know, in, in how do you see fun, our relationship with, with like, how, how would this potentially, what, you know, over the next 10, 20 years, change our relationship with fossil fuels, change our relationship with, with other extractive uh, uh, um, processes to, that, you know, like, what, what, do you, what do you see happening? What, what is the, the thing that you're sort of most inspired at, or that you want to leave people with as the, you know, young people, this is something you got to get into studying and, and think more about, you know? So when I was a kid, I, I do mention in the book that the, the Apollo astronauts came to Sudbury and they drove their land, their lunar rover around in the mine barrens. And so I was a, a kid of the space age and I loved astronomy and I, uh, that's what I wanted to be. And that, of course, the, the, the joke is that I just, discovered I didn't like working at night so I couldn't be in a spot <laughs> be something else so I became a biologist but one of the wildest stories that came up and it came up I think as as I was just about finishing the book was that NASA had decided that they were going to see if they could build a factory uh, build a, a factory that they could carry on the mission to Mars and the idea would be that they would grow fungi on Mars and take advantage of some of these technologies that are being developed to use fungal cells as construction material. And uh, so that, that is going on. There's people making bricks out of, out of fungal cells. There's people making boards. There's people making clothing, canoes, all kinds of things. But they thought, okay, we can go up there and we can make building panels out of mycelium and while we're at it, we can stick algal cells in into this board, so that the we they'd essentially be making an artificial lichen, and that's what they would use to build the colony, the human colony, the human buildings on on Mars. And uh, like it's a totally wild idea, but NASA funded it, and there's you know respectable scientists and engineers who are who are doing this. So if you want pie in the sky thinking, I think that's that I find the notion that, is you could grow a city. Yeah, almost. Yeah. 
which I mean, that's awesome. And that the fact that you can say that as a scientist without, you know, uh, saying, well, here's something totally, I mean, obviously it's not happening tomorrow. We're not going to be, but what a, what an awesome idea. We could build a city. Uh, like science is, yes. And just like artists vote ideas to come back mm. to the beginning. And, and what's important is to have ideas and the ideas evolve and, and their value gets sorted out by other processes. But if you, if you don't have the idea in the first place, you're never going to do something like that. Or, or, and so I'm, I, I, I embrace that crazy idea. I think it would be wonderful if it worked. Um, one of the big things we keep reading about now, microplastics, the plastics from the ocean, the, the, you know, it seems to me that banning straws may, may help on some level, but the kinds of things you're hinting at in the book seem much more interesting to me that you could actually turn a single use plastic back into some kind of usable energy, right? Using, using a kind of external metabolism of, of, of a fungal colony. Yeah. They, it's the enzymes again. They, they seem to be, some of the molds seem to produce enzymes that let's just call it soften the plastic a bit. They, they chemically alter parts of the plastic. They don't really break it into pieces. So it would be, again, it'd be kind of a collaborative process between chemistry and biology in this case, because if, if they don't, if, if fungal alteration of plastics makes it less energy intensive to do the chemistry, to break the plastics down and reuse that matter, um, that, that would be a good thing. And I think that that may come. It's uh, people are just starting to, to take that kind of idea. Um, again, it's the, it's the same kind of polarity idea. You know, if you want to just use one fungus and you want to have one process that's going to do everything, it's probably not going to work. But if you're willing to think of it as, as a pathway that you need to either let it evolve or, or, or push it along so that it happens. I, th I think a lot of things are possible. And then the more we involve fungi, the, the, the more success we're likely to have because of all of the enzymes and metabolites that they can make. They're very creative chemists. Mm. Well, Keith, you know, thank you so much for, for writing the book and for talking with us this afternoon. It's a great thrill for me to uh, participate in the Ottawa International Writers Festival. Well, thank you so much for being with us. That was my conversation with Dr. Keith Seifert and his fascinating book, The Hidden Kingdom of Fungi. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.